Here we are looking at John 6, then maybe I don't know what your habits are on Sunday mornings. I hope that for every minute you spend reading the headlines, you spend 10 minutes reading the scriptures, on, especially on the Lord's Day as you getting ready for the Lord's Day. But maybe you check the news and maybe you did last night. But it, it, if, you're, if you're awake and alert to what's going on in our nation and in our world, you read the national political headlines and I would say... Most people would say things really don't look that good. Um, I'm not going to comment on political candidate, presidential candidates or anything like that. But, but for the evangelical Christian voter, we just say, there's just not a lot of great choices um, in this election. And, so, and it's a significant election because there will be Supreme Court justices that are likely going to be appointed. So for generations... Uh, this nation will be affected, in a sense, by the outcome of this presidential election. So, so again, from an evangelical perspective, we maybe would say things don't look that great and look that bright for our nation. There's just kind of moral, spiritual decline, social decline, and it seems to be happening fast. And so, how, how should we live? How should we speak? How should we think? How should we act in light of of the headlines. Well, just hold that thought, and I, I think we'll have time to come back to that at the end. But, but now let's look to John 6. And if you re- read through John 6, if you were reading through this passage this morning, you, you could kind of say the same thing. You, you would say as you read through John 6, things don't really look that good for Jesus and His little movement. Um, things don't seem bright and sunny. The crowds misunderstand Him. The Jewish leaders, the establishment, they, they, they dislike Jesus. They distrust Jesus. The, the, his, even His followers now, are many of them are leaving Him. And even among the twelve, one of them we'll see is, is a betrayer. And so humanly speaking, you look at John 6 and say, this does not look good. Things don't, don't look good. The future does not look bright. Jesus' growing movement that we've been seeing throughout the Gospel of John so far, now it's declining very fast. And, 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 and so it seems, it seems like it's just on this downward spiral. But is it? Is it really? Um, well, hold on to that thought too. We're gonna, we're going to come back to that at the very end for sure. But we're jumping back in the middle of, of, a, of an extended discourse here in John chapter 6. And Jesus is giving this discourse at a synagogue in Capernaum. We see that down in verse 59 of chapter 6. We see the location. So he's speaking on the same day, or excuse me, on the day after he healed the, all of the crowds, the multitudes that came to him and, and, and fed the thousands of people miraculously with the uh, five loaves of bread and the two fishes, and 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 then he walked on water, met the disciples in the storm, and uh, calmed the storm instantly with his word. And so Jesus and the twelve they make it to the shore in Capernaum. Eventually, the crowds that that are looking for Jesus they want to they want to be fed by him again. They find him and they start asking him questions. And Jesus uses the opportunity to say some very true things and some very hard things. To this crowd and to his followers. And he tells them that eternal life is only found in him. The true bread of life. And so these, this bread that again flows right out of this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. 
This is what Jesus uses as a springboard to say these things to the people. So, so just two two kind of category two uh, points here this morning as we walk through this 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 section together. And so the first thing, just say it like this: is listen to Jesus's challenge. Jesus is going to challenge his hearers in a very pointed way, and so let's let's make sure we hear what he's saying to them. So listen to his challenge. Verse fifty one again. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, you could say what Jesus wants is for people to eat his flesh. And that's what he's saying there. And as he worked through this passage, you go back to verse 38, 35, verse 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then, verse 50 and 51, men should eat this bread. The bread, then, verse 51, is my flesh. So the obvious conclusion is that men, people, should eat the flesh of Jesus. That's what he said in a very literal way. And that's why he gives his flesh for this very purpose. It's sacrificial giving of his flesh. And so, we'll see, this is not the first time in John that Jesus' hearers listen to him and understand him in a kind of hyper-literal way. But that's exactly what happened. So, verse 52. The Jews disputed among themselves. They're arguing among themselves over the meaning of Jesus' words. They disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How is that possible? <laughs> you know, are we just going to tear a hunk off? How, how, how is that possible for him to give us his flesh to eat? So, Jesus quickly interjects and says... I did not mean it like it sounded. You know, that, boy, that, that came out wrong, didn't it? I mean, eat my flesh, boy, that, I'm sorry guys, that, that really sounded gross, didn't it? So that's not at all what I meant. No! That's not what he does. Instead, he, he really strengthens his statement. He makes it even more harsh to the ears of these Jewish hearers. He goes from saying something that sounds impossible, and that's the question they ask, how? How can we do this? That's, it's not possible. To saying something that sounds absolutely absurd. So verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, that's, we'll see this throughout John, most assuredly, take this to the bank, what I'm about to tell you. You listen to what I'm about to say. You can stake your life on these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, now just, and let's put the pause button there again, unless, wait, that just is a clue for us, it's a little verbal clue that it's going to tell us what he's going to, what he's about to say and what the significance of it is. He's, he's going to tell us that there's going to be some necessary condition for some desired outcome. Unless this happens, then this. We get just in, in the, our own context, unless Steph Curry breaks both of his legs and plays blindfolded with no legs, the Golden State Warriors are pretty much going to win the NBA championship. I mean, that's just me thinking so. Um, I mean, it, it just seems like it's a given. But this is, this is so there's Jesus saying there's this desired outcome, and you see it at the end of verse 53, life. That's the life. That's the goal. That's the end. And so not biological life, like just living but spiritual life, eternal life, his hearers would have understood this. So, only if whatever Jesus says after unless happens 
can they have that life? There's this necessary condition. So what does Jesus unless them about here? Verse 53. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. So the desired outcome, life. The necessary condition, eat my flesh, drink my blood. You think he's trying to avoid the, the uh, perception that this is, is distasteful to his hearers? He's cannibalism, vampirism, I don't know if that's a word, but, uh, but, but eating flesh was, was more than they could stomach, but drinking his blood, this was incredibly repulsive for these Jewish hearers. There are all kinds of regulations in the Old Testament. Blood, but but here, here, but let's look on. Verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Again, he's just making it crystal clear. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and, as, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So what is he talking about? What, what, is, what are we to make of this eating his flesh and drinking his blood? This is the key to eternal life. Well, some are quick to jump to the conclusion that that this is some kind of reference to the Lord's table, to communion. We celebrated this last Sunday. And you can see why people would make that jump. Eat this in remembrance of me. This is my body. Eat this in remembrance of me. This is my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. But tying these words to the Lord's table, it, it doesn't fit. Um, let me give you a few reasons. One, there is no Lord's table yet. I mean, it's another year in Jesus' ministry. It's at the very end of his life that he institutes the Lord's table. So it would be strange to call people to engage in some ordinance that they, that's never even been introduced. They have no clue about. Not even the disciples would have had any context for understanding this as being the Lord's table for communion. So, so it's not. So that's one reason. There's no Lord's table. Second, he's addressing unbelievers. He's talking to unbelievers primarily. He's, he describes them three times in this discourse as not believing in him. They, and unbelievers are not to participate in the communion table. The table is for those who have already eaten, as we'll see in just a moment, already, who have already eaten Christ. That is, we've, we've come and already believed in him personally. And so observing a rite, a ritual, observing the Lord's table, it doesn't create a reality. Taking communion doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't give you eternal life. And so, so that's another reason. I, that's, not, that's not what he's talking about here. Third, that, again, we kind of alluded to this, but eating results in life. It, it, it produces life. Eating the bread of God, feeding on Jesus, it, it results in life, eternal life. In other words, Jesus is giving an invitation here to come, to eat, and to receive life. It's free, 
It's, it's a gift, it's a free, but it, but it can only be received personally, directly through Him, and the outcome is the possession, again, of eternal life. Again, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. You, taking a wafer and grape juice is not going to give you eternal life. And that's not the purpose of communion. We gather and celebrate the Lord's table as, a, as, a, as, a, as an acknowledgement of our dependence as Christians upon Christ, a remembrance of Him, what He's done, and, and our interdependence on one another. So we, we come with thankfulness for the death that He offered, the, the love that the Father extended, sending the Son in our place. That's what we do. Communion, it's a celebration for Christians. It's not for the making of Christians. And then finally, just the context. I mean, it's, it's, it becomes clear as you just see it in its context. If you compare two verses, look at verse 47 and verse 51. You see the same formula, basically, but different words. So in verse 47, he, I'm just kind of taking the, 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 the I'm just giving the bare structure of the sentence here. He who believes in me has everlasting life. That's verse 47. And it's most basic form. And then you get to verse 51. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. They're saying the same thing with different words. You, there's just two ways of saying the same thing. Eating bread. Uh, eating the bread of life. Believing in Jesus. Same thing. The imagery, again, isn't connected to the Lord's table as a right. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying by this expression, eating my bread. Uh, flesh, drinking my blood. He's saying that whoever accepts, whoever appropriates Jesus' sacrifice, his giving of his flesh, his giving of his blood, uh, whoever accepts the sacrifice is the only ground of salvation, takes that as their own, receives eternal life. That's what Christ is saying here. He says to them, he says to you and me, he says, come to me. Be united to me. Feast upon me. Believe in me. If you don't do that, there's no spiritual life in you. You've got to take me as your own. Religion won't do it. Coming to church won't do it. Taking communion won't do it. Being baptized won't do it. Nothing we do can do that. It's it's by faith. It's, It's taking Christ. Trusting in Him. That's the only way to participate in the gift of eternal life that Christ offers is by faith in Him alone. And Jesus is emphasizing that. That's what He's saying by saying, devour my flesh, drink my blood, come to me, believe in me. So that's the first thing. Just listen to the challenge that Jesus makes. And again, I don't want to mute the kind of the abrasiveness of Jesus' words, but I want us to understand what they truly mean. What is He saying? Alright, then the second movement here. Is, is the response. We want to learn from the people's response to the challenge that Jesus lays down. So learn from their response. Verse 60. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, before we get to their question of Jesus, let, let's just stop in that little word. He's, many of His disciples heard it. We, we have to do a little, some of you biologist folks, I know some of you high school students are doing dissection. Well, we need to do a little dissection of that word disciples. We want to see what's in that word. Because 
We think of disciples as, as those who follow Jesus for the long haul. I mean, we talk about Christian discipleship and someone becomes a believer in Jesus Christ and we begin discipling them and teaching them and, and showing them what it means to follow and to, to live the Christian life. And that's a right use of the word disciple and discipleship. I mean, our purpose as a church, we exist to glorify God by making disciples of Christ at home and abroad. This is, this is why we exist, for the making of disciples. But, but here, we have disciples who are on the verge of not following Jesus anymore, of not being disciples anymore. So how do we understand this? What do we think of these people that he calls disciples here? Well, the answer lies in the, kind of the New Testament flexibility with that word disciples. There's unique aspects and, and ways in which this word disciple is used in the New Testament. The word itself simply means learner. A disciple is a learner. You have a teacher, you have a student. You have a master, you have a disciple, a learner. And so the New Testament uses this word in, in basically four senses. And, and the context is going to help us understand what sense of the word is, the writer has in mind in each place and what Jesus has in mind here. And I'm using some labels that... Uh, I'll start with C, and I'm borrowing these from uh, Dwight Pentecost. He talks about the curious, the convinced, and the committed. And I'm going to add a fourth one to that. But first of all, there are, there are curious disciples. And that's what we have here in John 6. This is the, if we could have a, see discipleship as a, as a ladder, this would be the lowest rung of discipleship. This is, again, the group we see here. They had, they had been very interested in Jesus. They had followed Him, maybe for a while, they saw his miracles, they heard his teaching, they were impressed by him, and so they, they, they followed along, they, they listened, and they were traveling with Jesus maybe even, and they were, if he came near, they would go out and hear him, and so they were learners of Jesus in that sense, they were curious, they were interested, but as soon as they come up against something that they disagree with in his teaching, they lose their curiosity, and that's what we see here. They're not believers, they're not true believers, Jesus, again, he makes that very clear in this discourse. They have not believed in Jesus. They were disciples in the loosest sense of the term, but not true believers. Kind of like Jesus' groupies. They were just traveling around and fascinated by Jesus, interested in him, curious, checking him out, but they had not believed in him. So there are curious disciples. And again, that is what I think we find with those in this situation that Jesus says don't believe Second, there are convinced disciples. Convinced disciples. We see this clearly in Scripture. There are, there are people who understand, truly understand Jesus' identity, who He is. They, they, they get it. They believe in Him. They've come to trust in Christ personally in His message, the Gospel. And so they're convinced of who Jesus is and they believe in Him. They're, they're believers, but they have a long way to go. As Paul would say, they're babes in Christ. But but as soon as you're born again, you're a disciple. I mean, this is the way you see it in the book of Acts. And and so you have Peter and others preaching the gospel, coming into town and, and preaching the gospel, and Christ crucified, risen again, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. And, and folks believe, and then you have all of these new disciples, these babes in Christ, brand new believers, brand new disciples. But they're convinced of who Christ is. So there are, there are those 
disciples. Then there are the committed disciples. And this is where all of us need to go. The, the babes in Christ need to, need to go on here. They need to be challenged in Christ to go. While we become Christians by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. It's faith alone. We're to live as committed disciples of Christ. Willing to let everything go to follow Christ. Let our family go. Let, let our, uh, to, to endure suffering. Even lose our own lives for the sake of following Christ. And you see this clearly in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament. So taking the demands of Jesus Christ very seriously of what it means to be His disciple, His follower, surrendering everything to follow Christ, even, as I said, our own lives, if it's necessary, for Him and for His cause. And again, so salvation is free gift. Just faith. Faith alone. But once we're saved, we begin following Jesus and it, and it, and it could cost us everything to follow Him. And we need to be willing to... to, to Surrender all for Christ. And then last, and I'm adding this group to the list that Pentecost has, is the commissioned disciples, because I think that's referenced here. There is, there's a smaller subset, so if you could kind of think of these four types of disciples as concentric circles, and this would be the smallest circle that's a part of the, the larger uh, circles, but there, there are those Examples, there are examples of this in the New Testament. Those who later became apostles who were part of founding the church of Jesus Christ. This is the way the, the word is often used in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke when it talks about the disciples. He's referring to the twelve or sometimes the seventy. Or, or, but but this, is, this is what I'll, I'll back out of that. So what I want you to see though is, is Jesus' disciples. We, we need to understand what what that means, and that there are different shapes and sizes of disciples. And the context, again, is going to help us understand. The common denominator between all is that they're all learners. They're all learning under the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. But back to John 6, and, and we see the response to Jesus' Jesus' discourse. There are three responses from three different groups here in, in John 6. There are the Jews, we saw this last at time, there, those are the host, when it says the Jews, he's talking about the hostile Jewish leaders and those who follow them. So there's that response. There's the response of the disciples, and we've identified them already, and we'll come back to that. And then there's the response of the twelve, that inner group of disciples. And there's overlap between those last two groups, as we just talked about. So the reaction of the Jews, we've already seen this in previous weeks. What do they do? They ask questions of Jesus, and those questions aren't just curiosity, they stem from unbelief. They, they don't believe Jesus, and so they're trying to get Him. And we see this in verse 28, verse 30, verse 31 of chapter 6. We see that they murmured, they mocked Jesus, verse 41, verse 42. They argued with one another, verse 52. And so, so this is the response of the Jews, of the Jewish leaders, the antagonism towards Christ. Now in verse 60, and following here, we see the reaction of the disciples, again in that broadest sense of the word, the curious disciples, probably scores of them, maybe hundreds of these followers of Jesus. And when Jesus is done speaking, look again at how they respond. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, what he said about eating my flesh, drinking my blood, that's the only way you have eternal life, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It's not, this is a hard saying. Who can understand this? 
I, this is so difficult to understand. We want to know, Jesus. Just help us understand what you what you what you're saying. This is no. It's this is a hard saying. This is hard to swallow. Who can listen to this garbage? That's the that's what this stems from. They're offended at Christ's words. They're probably disgusted by what Jesus is saying here. This is a hard saying. It's not the hardness of the sermon. It's the hardness of their hearts that leads to this reaction. This is a reaction born out of unbelief. And it's revealing what's in their hearts. And so it's in that light that we can understand Jesus' question to them that immediately follows. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. Remember, Jesus knows what's in every man. We saw this back in John chapter 2. He knows what they're grumbling about in themselves. And he said to them, do you take offense at this? What do they take offense at? Probably everything that Jesus said has just said in this discourse. That the manna they had grown up hearing so much about, and they were they looked back and heard the stories of of Moses and the Exodus and God providing manna. That 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 the manna that was just a sign of God's blessing and favor. And Jesus is coming and saying that was nothing. I'm the true bread of life. My this bread far surpasses that that manna that your fathers ate. That Jesus is offering His own flesh to eat. That, that Jesus says, in order to have eternal life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They, what do they object to? They object to everything that Jesus is saying. It's, oh, it's hard. It's hard. This is too much for these curious, casual tagalongs of Jesus. And, and so, they're offended. He says, do you, do you take offense at this? I mean, just, this is kind of a sidebar, but... I mean, this is there's an important distinction to make in Christian ethics as we talk about ethical issues, and it's this: is that there's a difference between an offense given and an offense taken. That that many times we take offense at things people do or say when no offense is actually given. We just we just don't like what they had to say. <laughs> I'm offended by that. Well, that doesn't mean an offense was given. That means I'm taking offense at what you said. We we feel insulted when no one insults us. And this happens in the church. But I'm, we're commanded as Christians not to give offense, not to violate people, not to do harm to other people. And we do this all the time too, so I'm not saying we, to excuse ourselves. We give offense, and this is a temptation for believers, but we should try hard not to do that. But sometimes you can do exactly the right thing and offend people because they take offense. And so no one ever spoke more perfectly or inoffensively than our Lord. Even right here, as he's talking about eating his flesh and blood. He's not giving offense. But what happened? They took offense at what he says. And then he goes on, verse 62. Then, so are you offended by what I have to say? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before. What if you saw me clothed in glory on the Mount of Ascension, the angels surrounding me? What are you going to say then? Yes, you bristle at my words, at these hard sayings, but what would you say if, you, if I manifest my glory before your eyes? You would delight in it. But, but Jesus is saying there's many things He says, many things He does that they grate against them. 
But that will all be forgotten when the truth is made clear of who He is and His full identity. And He goes on to say more hard things. Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of a little help. No. The flesh is of no help at all. No help at all. Here he's not talking about, again, I know it can seem confusing because he's been talking about his flesh. Eat my flesh. Here's not talking about his flesh. He's talking about our flesh. This is a major theme in Scripture and throughout John. We've already seen this. Remember back in Nicodemus. Man must be born of the Spirit. John chapter 3 verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The flesh cannot produce spiritual reality. The flesh profits nothing. It's the Spirit who gives life. And we have to get this, brothers and sisters. Because we so easily miss this. And we can forget this, even as true believers. We have to understand that in our natural condition, we cannot please God. We have no strength to do spiritual things. We, we have no inclination toward the things of the heaven. We have to be born again by the Spirit. We need the disposition of our heart changed. And if that doesn't happen, we remain in the flesh. We remain under death. I mean, this is an old, old struggle for the church to, to work through this. And it, it surfaced prominently during the Protestant Reformation. This is one of the key issues that came up in the 1500s in the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther debated Erasmus on this very point back in the early 1500s. And the context of this debate was that Erasmus wrote this diatribe against Luther and his stance on predestination. I'm surprised I didn't get any of those diatribes this last week uh, in my email after last Sunday, but uh, I'm thankful. Uh, but uh, but uh, so 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 Luther's responding to Erasmus's kind of charges against Luther, and and he holds. Because Erasmus, he's holding on to this idea. This is the thought that he had. That even though we're fallen, there remains this little island of righteousness in fallen humanity. However small it may be, there's this little bit of goodness inside man that remains in everybody. And, and it's enough that if we just kind of compress the right buttons of the heart, we can incline men towards God. And Luther says, no, it's not, it's not it. And Jesus already told these people that nobody can come to God unless the Father draws him. No one can come to Jesus. God has to do something first. Why? Because the flesh can't do it. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh is of no help at all. And in the in that debate of, of with Luther and, and Erasmus, he he's exegeting this passage here, John six sixty three. The flesh profits nothing, and he says. This is great. Dr. Erasmus, that nothing is not a little something. It's nothing. And so, if you're resting in the, in the strength of your own righteousness, of your own goodness, if you think there is some little island of righteousness in your heart, and your soul, that that is going to be enough if, to, to, to make you acceptable before God, you, you've missed what our Lord is teaching here. Our flesh Flesh in our flesh dwells no good thing, profits nothing. 
Your flesh cannot get you into the kingdom of God. Not, no good works that you do. No amount of achievements. No morality. No, any, not anything you do in your own strength. No commitments. No vows you make to God. Nothing can make you right with God. It is the Spirit who brings life. As we put our faith in Christ in Him alone. And then he goes on. So the Spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. Jesus' words give life. They are Spirit and life. And yet these people, they just walk away. They remain dead in their sins. They remain in the flesh. They follow Jesus. They've been learners of Jesus. But they leave. They don't want to hear it. Verse 64. But there are some of you, again, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. It's the third time we've heard that in this passage. And after this, many of His curious disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. And Jesus just watches this mass exodus. Here He is teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, packed house. People just start filing out. All that's left, 12 people. (laughs) Just to picture the scene of, of what this was like. They, they, he, he watches them go. These, these people who many have been with Him weeks, maybe months, maybe years following Him. He knew them. Maybe been in their homes. He, he, he knew these people. And yet they turned back. They turned back. They went back to the things that they left behind when they decided to go and follow and learn from Jesus. They went back to the same things. They went back to their ordinary pursuits, to fishing and tax collecting, whatever they did before. But I think there's more than that. I think they they went back to their former way of thinking, former way of living. No intention of ever returning to Jesus. Now, some may have after the resurrection. Many probably did come come back. but, But the synagogue just empties out. And there is Jesus left alone with this core group. I mean, this is a major crisis. I mean, you put your shoes in the put yourself in the shoes of the twelve here, watching all these people leave. Here they this this is growing enthusiasm. Just the day before, thousands of people on this hill. Jesus miraculously feeding and healing all of these people. All this excitement. Jesus walks on water in the night, and then here, boom! The next day, everybody's gone. He's he's offended everybody. They've all left. I mean, it's, they, they knew these people. they probably close friends with these people. Probably knew their families. Probably spent gobs of time with them, eating meals together, traveling together. I mean, it's had to hurt seeing them go. And this was more painful than all of the crowds, the hungry crowds, the kind of fickle crowds that, that left Jesus when they wouldn't feed Him again. These were disciples, not believers, but learners. And so it's like witnessing to a friend for years in years, and he's interested in learning more about Jesus, and he's willing to read the Bible with you, and he's got questions, and he's he's genuinely curious and seems open, but eventually he comes to the point where he says, "Nope, 
I'm not going to believe. And I, end of conversation. I'm tired of hearing about it. And, and the relationship is fractured. And they, they go on. And that's a painful thing. I mean, this is basically what's happened here, but with, in mass. And so Jesus is walking, watching everybody walk away, go home, leave him. And he turns to his disciples, a few who are left, and he says, Et tu, Brute? <laughs> and you? What about you? You going to leave also? Verse 67, So Jesus said to the twelve, that's the first time this expression is used in John, it's not going to be the last, he said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Huh. What a moment. And then we have this incredible confession of faith from the lips of Simon Peter. Verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, No, Jesus, we, we love hard sayings. Give us more of them. That's not it at all. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. We, speaking on behalf of the twelve, really the twelve minus Judas, saying we, we have believed, we have come to know, that's a perfect tense in the Greek, which just means it's this kind of past event with present implications. We, we have begun to believe and we still believe. We have come to realize and we're still convinced that You are the Holy One of God, transcendent Deity, the, the God's Messiah, the Promised One, the Holy One of God. We believe. Now their faith was not full and robust and mature, but there's it's just desperation. We have nowhere else to go. We believe that life is in You. We don't understand it all. We'll see they're fickle. They depart and they get scared later. And they stumble. But they, they make this confession of faith in Christ. They say, are you, are you ever tempted to, to walk away? If Jesus were to say here, what, what about you? Are you, are you going to leave also? Are you tempted to go? Where, where else are you going to go? Are you going to go to Muhammad? You know, join jihad? You're not going to find words of eternal life there. Are you going to go just ditch religion? Pursue the atheistic philosophers of the day? There's no life in that. If you want words of eternal life, there's only one place you can get them, and it's in Jesus. Words that He says are spirit in our life. The One who gave His body and His blood, who's given life so that His own life so that we might live. It's Jesus alone. Where else, where else will you go? Well, that's a great way to end the chapter, isn't it? Verse 69, this glorious confession of faith. Except that it's not the end of the chapter. Now, the chapter divisions, I realize, are later editions, not original to the Scriptures. But it wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be great if we could just strike verse, 50, verse 70 and 71? And I intentionally had Pat not read those verses, so we're going to look at them now. But verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? 
So there's one exception to Peter's confession here. Um, there's, there's a devil, there's a slanderer, a false accuser, one who's an instrument of the Satan himself. There's a devil. And Jesus calls him out, though not by name here. And why does he, why does he do this? Why does he say this here? I think a couple reasons. One, it's to, it's, it's, it's so that he would never be able to say he wasn't warned. And then two, so the disciples would never, and, and nobody else, even we, wouldn't be able to say that Jesus was caught unaware, that he would be surprised by the, the devil's um, actions. And so we see the devilish character of this one and the fact that, yes, all the others left, the other curious followers, they, they left and they went back, but this one chose to stay, even though he was not with Jesus, he didn't believe in Jesus, he chose to stay and to ride this thing out, and that, in a sense, is more devilish than the other group. He's not with Christ, but he remains with him and acts as if he's in full accord with Jesus. And John, writing this account again many years later, he adds this note of explanation, verse 71. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. He's distinguishing him because there was another Judas in the twelve. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And again, first time we've seen the twelve in this passage, it was in this passage. Now we've seen it three times. And it's just little, that little pause. One of the twelve. I think that's just showing the enormity of the sin. One of the twelve. You've got to be kidding me. <sighs> the, the, one of the chosen ones. One of the favored ones by Christ. One who spent so much time. You're telling me he's committing... He's going to be the one that commits this terrible deed of betrayal. One of the twelve. That's a dark ending to the chapter. You read the headlines of John 6. It does not look good. One commentator said, Chapter 6 ends on a note of failure. And from one standpoint, that is exactly right. And so I said this in the beginning of the message that humanly speaking, things don't look good for Jesus and his dwindling little band of followers, his movement here. The resistance to Jesus gets stronger and stronger throughout this chapter and until almost everyone abandons him. It looks like failure. It looks like opposition. Resistance is winning the day here in John 6. But why is this recorded for us? And I think there's a reason. I think one reason this is recorded for us is to remind us that whenever it appears as if resistance to Jesus is winning, remember that it's not. It's not. We, we, we need this clear vision of God's sovereignty over all things, including opposition, including hostility. I just say in your own life, whenever it appears that, that Jesus is not winning, when it seems like He's not triumphing over whatever enemy it is you're facing, and whatever that is, at, at that point, at that time, you need this robust and clear vision of God on His throne in control, unshaken by whatever is going on in your life. We need this, and we get this here. John wants us to get this. You think, why in the world does Judas play so prominently in here? He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything. But, but now, three times we've seen him referred to in this passage. John brings him up. Jesus brings him up. John makes comment. They don't have to mention him. He doesn't do anything here. Why do they? Say something. Because John and Jesus wants to get, again, this deep, big, growing 
robust vision of God's sovereignty even over unbelief and resistance. It's not thwarting His plans. Because it's easy, and, and, you, and you think about this, there, there are all kinds of questions that come to our minds when we read verses 70 and 71. And we see all kinds of problems in the passage. We, we ask these questions. Why would Jesus choose a man He knew would betray Him? You can chew on that over lunch and, and then spend a lot of money in the auction. I, uh, but, but think about that. If, if, if He knew He would betray Him, then He had to betray Him. So how can Judas truly be free? And why would Jesus call him a devil? Is he, is, is, and is he doomed like the devil? If so, is he really responsible? This had to be. So you could spend the rest of your life dealing with problems like we see in verse 70. Or you could read verse 70 and you can see a sanctuary for your soul. It's just, the, just let the sovereignty of God be this warm embrace and whatever is going on in your life, whatever troubles you're facing, however much resistance to Christ you see in your life, in the world, you can say, God is in control. Jesus is winning. And when all hell breaks loose in your life and you feel like everything is out of control, it feels like the devil is winning, this passage reminds us that Jesus, Jesus wins. He is in charge. And that is of great comfort to us. It should be. It doesn't make all of the storm clouds just instantly disappear and it's just a bright, bright, sunny day like we have today, metaphorically speaking. But it does. It gives us an anchor in the storm. It gives, it gives us a refuge in the storm to weather it so we won't be crushed. We can take refuge in the, in the sovereign arms of Jesus. So I mean, just in closing, I said I would get maybe get here in the end, but I mean, just as you as you look at the situation in our own nation, and maybe you're really troubled, maybe some of you're really shaken, and you're and, and this is really troubling to you, and then, and it should be in a sense, and so uh, you wouldn't want to laugh it off, you don't want to you don't want to uh, minimize it, ignore it, pretend things aren't bad, you don't want to disengage and say ah forget it. That's not it at all. I want you to be active, be involved, be in, in, the, in the public square and, and care. But don't be scared. Don't be given to fear. Don't, don't be afraid that, that resistance to Christ will win in the end. Jesus is in charge. He is not, no matter how bleak the outlook seems, Jesus will win. That's true nationally, internationally. That's true in this church, that's true in your life and whatever you're going through. Let's pray. Lord, help us steady our hearts and just firm up the, the, the moorings of our faith to, 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 to be stable in the midst of whatever storms, in the midst of whatever resistance, uh, whenever, whenever it seems like the enemy is winning, just stabilize our hearts with the truth that, uh, of, of your sovereignty over all things fact that we have this glorious picture, this glorious Jesus that we see portrayed in, in the scriptures here that wins and we, we are on the Lord's side and so we thank you for that. May, us, may, our, may our hearts be not gripped with fear but may they be gripped with passion to, to see the nations come to know and to believe and to proclaim and to worship this Jesus. 
Not that we wouldn't shudder or run and afraid of those who oppose them, but may we run to them with open arms, with the gospel on our lips, with love in our hearts for compassion for those who, who are uh, our enemies, who are Christ's enemies, and preaching the good news of life, life in Christ. Help us as a church to resolve to do that no matter what comes tomorrow, no matter what comes this November. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.